0: And now hear God's holy word from Revelation chapter 19, continuing our study in the book of Revelation. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. Now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your Word, and we ask you as we read it and as we hear it, Explain today that you would penetrate our hearts with its truth, open our ears, open our minds to receive it, to meditate on it, and then to live in light of the truth that we hear and see in it today. Father, deliver us from all distraction, deliver us from every error today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We are getting close to summertime, and I know that some of you have plans to take some great trips soon. We've maybe missed out on a few trips over the last year and a half or so, and so you may be eager to get away. And I want to get into travel planning mode for just a few minutes, get in that mindset, and think about what we need to do when we get to the airport. Uh, let's say we want to fly to someplace sunny and nice in a, in a free state like Arizona or, or someplace like that and someplace on the other side of the country. And on the day that you park your car, and you walk into the terminal, there will be a plane leaving at a specific time to go to a warm and sunny place that you want to be in. What relationship must you have with that plane when it takes off toward Phoenix, say? Maybe you want to demonstrate that you are submitted to the authority of the plane. You agree with the agenda of the plane to fly to Phoenix. You say, that's a good plan. I submit to that plan. So it would be helpful. It'd be really symbolically significant if I were under the plane. If I just walk out under the plane, and that would show everybody that I'm submitted to the plane. The plane is over me, and I'm under it. Or maybe you would like to be inspired by the plane, to stand in the terminal and watch it take off and soar into the clouds and say into your breath, oh, I wish I could do that someday. Maybe if I believed in my heart, maybe if I really, really thought about it long and hard, I too could fly in that direction one day. And you're kind of inspired, have a little sense of what it means to be uh, uh, in flights, to have that in your heart, maybe nurture and cherish that thought. Or would it be more helpful to be informed by the plane on an intellectual level? You buy textbooks on aviation and you get educated such that you could talk for hours about Bernoulli's principle. You could bore everybody for hours. You become an expert. Will that get you to Phoenix? Or maybe you could follow the plane. Maybe that's a good idea. You know, the general direction of Phoenix, you watch the plane take off and you start running after it and you run as far as you can in the general direction of Phoenix and you might get there one day too. You might end up there. Now, every one of those options is just absolutely silly. There's there's no good sense to any one of those. The primary relationship you need to have with the plane is not to be under it. Not to be inspired by it, not to be intellectually informed by it or behind it. You need to be in the plane. You need to be inside of it so that where the plane goes, you go. What happens to the plane happens to you. And so that the answer to the question, did you make it to Phoenix? And the answer to the question, did the plane make it to Phoenix? Those are the same question. And the answer is the same. If the plane made it, you made it. I'm hoping to give you a picture of what it means to be in Christ, to appreciate this mutual possession that we talked about last week when we studied the marriage supper of the Lamb, knowing that we are our beloveds and our beloved is ours. We saw last week the heavens rejoice in our God. As the Lord Jesus told Mary Magdalene on the day of his resurrection, he said, don't hold on to me, I'm going to my Father." and your father, my God, and your God. He's your God. He's your father. You possess him too. You have this relationship with him too. And so uh, in the marriage supper of the lamb, we saw the Lord Jesus becomes one flesh with his bride, the church. Uh, So tight is this union and communion. What do we call the church? We call it the body of Christ. He is the head. She is his body, this tightly knit identity that Jesus chooses to have with his people. It's spoken of throughout the scriptures. There are many references in the New Testament, particularly to people or blessings or promises being in Christ or in him or in the beloved. It shows up something like 160 times in the New Testament. The word Christian only shows up three times in the New Testament. The word Christian's a fine word. I use it all the time. But if I want to think about my identity, what does the New Testament drive me to? The the New Testament drives me to thinking of myself in Christ, to be in Him. So while we tend to think of Jesus as a leader whom we follow, and He is, or we think of someone who inspires us to be like Him, surely, or to understand Him, to contemplate Him, surely is important, or to submit to Him, absolutely, we submit to Him, but our relationship to the Lord Jesus is primarily spoken of as our being in Him. He is our environment. He is our temple. He is our promised land. And so what happens to Him happens to us. The way that He is blessed, we are blessed. Where He goes, we go, just like the airplane. We are in Him. We're in Him and in such an intimate union and communion with Him that His life is our life. His death is our death. His crucifixion is our crucifixion. And the rewards and the benefits of His crucifixion are ours as well. Uh, In Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Uh, His crucifixion is my crucifixion. Colossians 2 says, we are buried with Him in baptism. We are resurrected with Christ. We have ascended into the heavenlies with Christ. We have been enthroned with Christ. I never get tired of looking at Ephesians 2. That reminds us, God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Though we were dead, we have been given life just as he was dead and was and, and was resurrected by the Spirit. So we have resurrection life, but it doesn't stop there. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So his resurrection is our resurrection. His ascension is our ascension. His enthronement is our enthronement. We reign with him, 2 Timothy 2.12 says. Our life is hidden with Christ in Colossians 3.3. And we are members of his body, 1 Corinthians 12.27, which says, now you are the body of Christ and members individually. What does all this mean? It means when the father looks at you, he sees his well-beloved Son. When he loves his son, he loves you. And his pleasure in his son means that he is pleased with you. This is what Augustine talked about when he, when he wrote about the totus Christus, the whole Christ. The whole Christ is his head and his body, uh, Jesus and his church. Christ will not be separated from his people. And so if you are cut off from his body, you are cut off from the blessings and the benefits and the life of Christ. And this truth of our union with Christ is revealed majestically in Revelation 19 so far we have seen in just the last few weeks the false bride the harlot city of jerusalem has been judged now, historically that happened when uh the when rome destroyed the city in the 1st century and immediately after that we saw that the true bride the church is confirmed We saw her procession. The heavens rejoiced to join her feast. And now that the true bride of Christ has made herself ready, she is presented to her groom and their union is confirmed. Now, In chapter 19, in the middle where we're going to start reading today, the mighty bridegroom then girds on his sword, he takes up his rod of iron, he hops on his white horse, and he rides out to conquer the nations. He leads his people out such that his victory is their victory. His dominion is their dominion. We'll look at this passage in detail in just a moment. But before we start, I want to ask and answer the ever-present question that's with us every step of the way as we study this book is that when do these events take place? When do these things in Revelation 19 happen? That's a very good question because it's the same question that the apostles asked Jesus back in Matthew 24. Jesus told them in Matthew 24, the temple's coming down and they ask when, when is this gonna happen? And he said, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place. These are gonna happen in this generation, in this lifetime. And so in keeping with that, John has framed Revelation from beginning to end. He says in the very first verse, these are things which must shortly take place. And he says over and over at the end of the book, the time is near. Jesus says repeatedly in Revelation, I am coming quickly. Uh, So the judgment of the harlot city, Jerusalem, was very near to John's day as he writes these things. But then we get to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then we get Jesus riding out to make war on the beast. So so do we need to insert a few thousand years between the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the marriage supper of the Lamb and the conquest of Jesus? Well, in the very next chapter, in chapter 20, we do get a long period of time inserted, which indicates that the events that we're going to study over the next couple of weeks, those events do stretch out into the future, but we aren't there yet. So we are still reading about and we're studying about realities and events that take place in the immediate aftermath of the fall of Jerusalem in the first century. So when is the marriage supper of the Lamb? The only way I know how to understand this is to view it as something that happens in stages. We've read and read last week that the betrothed girl, the church, has made herself ready to marry Christ. And it is true that the church in heaven, the martyrs, the saints, the apostles, the prophets there who are gathered in full union with Christ, who are there without sin, with, there's no barrier to their fellowship and their union with Christ in such a way that the marriage between the church in heaven and Christ is a present reality. It's a present reality for, for them. How, how could they get into any deeper of a relationship with him? They're they're there. And yet the church on earth and the church in history continues to make herself ready. She continues to purify herself. And so there's a dimension to this that in the future at the resurrection, then the, the whole church on earth will move from betrothal to marriage. And then when you die and when I die and we leave this life, when our work on earth is done and when we are received into the heavenlies, we will move from betrothal to marriage. We will leave the betrothed church and we will join the church triumphant, the married church uh who are gathered around the throne of Jesus. See, there are places in the scripture where the the marriage between Christ and his bride is spoken of as a present reality. That's that's the whole basis of Ephesians uh 6. There's also a perspective of the bride continuing to be purified and to make herself clean in history. So there's this ongoing nature of the marriage Supper of the Lamb. And that's reflected in the covenant meal that continues to go on week by week by week. We continue as the bride of Christ, as the betrothed of Christ, to feast with him, to drink wine with him in his kingdom, and he feasts with his bride at his communion table. But lo, there breaks a yet more glorious day, as the great hymn for all the saints says. There's still something more that we are waiting on, and that's the full consummation that's for the church on earth to move from betrothal to consummation. So it seems the best way to see this is something that happens gradually, just like when we ask the question, when does Jesus ride out to defeat the beast and conquer the nations as he does in chapter 19? Is that at the end of history? Has it already happened? Or is it something that began with his conquest of Jerusalem and continues in stages throughout the present time? Now, it seems that it's most consistent to say, it 's the last one that it that it began with the conquest of Jerusalem and continues in stages we 've been uh, carrying on this parallel study on Wednesday nights in Daniel. And you remember, y'all have read Daniel before, and you know Nebuchadnezzar has this dream of all the empires that God established to carry out his work in the world that began with Babylon, and then you had the Medes and the Persians, and, and on throughout history all the way to the Romans. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream of these empires, began with Babylon, it ended with Rome, and then the whole thing gets smashed by an altar stone, the rock who is Christ. The entire program that began with Nebuchadnezzar and ended with Rome is now over on the timeline that we're studying in Revelation. The kingdom of Christ has smashed the empires of man, and God's dealing with the empires of man has changed. And also remember that altar stone that smashed the image that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about, what happened? It grew progressively until it was a mountain that filled the whole earth. The kingdom of Christ comes, it conquers the beast, it is established, but then it grows in stages throughout history. So to put it simply, what we're studying now, we're reading about works of God that began after the judgment of Jerusalem, after the old world of the old covenant is put away, and which continue from that point throughout history. Now, let's work our way through this text. Verse 11, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. I saw heaven opened. So far in Revelation, we have seen heaven progressively open. In chapter 4, John sees a door standing open in heaven. In chapter 11, the heavenly temple is open. In chapter 15, the heavenly ark is opened, and the law inside is exposed and we expose to it. The book of Revelation is a revealing, it's an unveiling, it's an opening. And so we've seen this gradual opening up of the heavenlies throughout the book of Revelation. And now that the judgment of the earthly temple is complete... All the veils that stood between God and man are removed. The only intermediary left between man and the Father is Christ, the one who rides out of the open heaven on a horse. God is now no longer at arm's length. There's no human priesthood. There are no zones of holiness to pass through. In Christ, we have full access to the heavenly sanctuary, and it is opened to us. I keep referring to this rider on this white horse as the Lord Jesus. That's not a guess, by the way. There are many mysteries and many puzzles in the book of Revelation, but the rider on this horse is no mystery. He's called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's called the Word. And so he stands as this stark contrast to the harlot that we read about just a few chapters before. Just as his bride contrasted the harlot, so the mighty bridegroom contrast the harlot. Do you remember she was riding a beast? She was riding the demonic empire of Rome. Jesus is also riding a beast. He's riding a white horse, which in our earlier study, we saw his white horse is always associated with his dominion, his empire. So he rides his empire that's in perfect submission to him. The uh, harlot is riding a beast that's like a bucking bronco or a mad, you know, a, 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 a wild, you know, bull that she's trying to hold on to. But his horse is in submission to him. Uh, Christ, uh, uh, is is his clothing is described just as the harlot's clothing is described. The harlot has a name inscribed on her and so does Jesus. He has a name inscribed on him, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The purity of the groom and the bride stand as a stark contrast to the defilement of the harlot city, Jerusalem. So the purity and the nobility of the bride and groom stand uh, apart the bride and groom are identified together. They go together. He's called faithful and true, which means she's faithful and true. He he defends her. He's fiercely loyal to his bride. And so he goes out to subdue her enemies and his enemies. They have the same enemies. They share a common enemy. And so he's the reliable, true witness and righteous judge. He renders perfect justice according to his law and the law of his father. And he processes out of heaven to earth to claim the nations which are his. Last week, I pointed out that from now on, all of the motion, all the direction of revelation is from heaven to earth. Everything comes down from here on. Heaven is where things get formed. Heaven is where things start. And then thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This comes more and more true as now Jesus comes to conquer, the heavenly city will descend and earth is transformed by heaven. Verse 12, his eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. His eyes shoot Fire. His eyes are a source of light. His eyes don't just take in light. They shine light in dark places. That makes him a perfect judge. He can see the things that you and I can't see. He knows what is said and done in back rooms. He knows what happens under the table. He knows the secret places, even the thoughts and the motives of your heart. He knows the recesses of your mind. Uh, human judges can't judge perfectly because we're easily fooled. We're we're easily deceived. He is not. He sees everything. His eyes are a source of light which shine and then judge. On his head are many crowns. Before this, he had a crown of thorns. And because he wore that crown of thorns faithfully, that crown of shame and that crown of affliction, he has now been exalted over all the nations and he wears all the crowns. As we sang this morning, crown him and crown him and crown him and crown him and crown him. It's, it's appropriate to say that a lot of times because he's got a lot of crowns. He's going around picking up the crowns, picking up the trophies of all the kingdoms, of all the nations, and he wears all of them. Each crown is a trophy of another conquered empire. And then this is very interesting. He has a name that no one knows except himself. What does that mean? Well, back in chapter 2, when he writes to the church at Pergamos, he says, if you will remain faithful, I will give each one of you a white stone and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Way back when we studied that, I suggested that a stone with a name written on it is a reference to the breastplate of the high priest. Remember when the high priest went to intercede before the nation of Israel, before God, he had a breastplate and on that breastplate were 12 stones and on those 12 stones were inscribed the names of the tribes of Israel. So when the high priest appeared before God, he came bearing the whole nation by name before the presence of God. And now Jesus as our new high priest as our new intercessor, he says, when I go before the Father, I'm going to wear your name on my breastplate. You're going to have a stone, and on that stone is your name, and I'm going to wear that, that that stone. Now, Jesus has an enormous breastplate because he's got all of our names on it. It's bigger than a, any breastplate that you've ever seen. It's got to be pretty big, but he wears it. And when he walks before the Father to intercede for us, he goes bearing your name and your cares and your intercessions and your needs. He bears that before the Father. Well, um, so now he, he also said this though. He said to Pergamos, he says, there's a secret name, a unique and intimate name that only I know that I give you. I, you've got a name that Jesus gives you that that he knows. You know, just like lovers have cute little names for each other. You have little pet names. Do you remember, remember when you were younger and you didn't have so much gray hair like I do? And you you know, talk to each other. And you have sweet little names for your beloved, for your precious. And it's, it's, if anybody else heard it, you'd be embarrassed, right? I and mean, she had a name for you, you had a name for her, and it was kind of cute. Or you have names for your children that no one else knows. You might have a nickname for your child that you don't want it to get out because it'd be kind of embarrassing. Nobody would get it. Nobody is just so silly and nobody would know it. But you got a name for them and nobody else is going to call them that name. But you call them that name and they know exactly what you mean when you call them that name. You're known in a unique and special way by your beloved, by your Savior. He knows you. And here's the flip side of that He also has a name that no one knows except Himself. It's what He says here. He's got a name that no one knows except Himself. Now, this is not the only time in Scripture that the Lord God is withholding of his, of his name. We see this in many places in scripture. After Jacob wrestles with God, after he dress, wrestles with the mighty angel of the Lord who is got to be the Lord Jesus, the church fathers would all say and many you know, uh, scholars throughout history would say this is the pre-incarnate Christ. Jacob is wrestling with the mighty angel of the Lord. He's wrestling with the Lord Jesus and he says, I'm not gonna let you go unless you bless me. And the Lord says, tell me your name. And Jacob says, my name's Jacob. And, and the angel says, you're not Jacob anymore. I have a new name for you. See, I've gotta, I'm going to name you something else. You're not supplanter anymore. Your name is now Israel. Your name is wrestler. And then Jacob says, well, tell me your name. And the Lord says, why do you ask me for my name? You don't need my name. And he blessed him. And that was it. He didn't share his name. If you go back to uh, go forward to uh, Samson's father, Manoah, When the angel of Yahweh, again, it's got to be Jesus. When the angel of Yahweh told Manoah that he would have a son, Manoah said, what is your name? So we can honor you. And the Lord says, why do you ask my name seeing it is wonderful? I'm not going to tell you my name. You just know it's wonderful. If you knew it, it'd blow your mind. It's wonderful. But I'm not going to tell you my name. And then Moses asked God, who should I say sent me? When they say, what's his name? What am I going to tell him? What does God say? God answers Moses and tell him, tell him, I am sent you. I am? Yeah, I am that I am. I'm the self-existent one. I am. I am the eternal one. That's who sent you. Well, why is God so withholding of his name? What's this all about? Well, when you have someone's name, you have a certain power over them. I can call your name and you look at me. I've got your attention. If I call your name in a crowded room, I holler your name. You're like, who's who's calling for me? When you have someone's name, you have control over them. And salesmen know the power of your name, which is why they use it all the time. They try to work it into everything as often as they can. When somebody starts overusing my name, I start to feel very manipulated. Why are you using my name so much? When somebody asks for our name, we give it to them. But God doesn't always give his name because... He doesn't give anybody power over him. He's not at your beck and call in a way that you can control him this way. The fact that Jesus has a unique name means that he's in control. Nobody controls him. Now he does give his beloved names that she can use to petition him. In the old covenant, he gave gave her his name Yahweh. He said, use Yahweh, use that name. And in the new covenant, he's revealed himself as Jesus. But he says, I've got another name and it's wonderful. It's above all names. And it's likely a name that's only known in the Trinity. The father knows the name, the spirit knows the name, but I don't know it and you don't know it. And that's pretty interesting. Verse 13, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Whose blood is on his robe? Is it his own blood? Probably not. He's already been through the suffering and the bloody sacrifice, and he's completed his work, and it's all done. That's why I really don't like uh, seeing uh, bloody crucifixes, particularly not in a sanctuary, particularly not in worship. We don't, we don't, Jesus, the Lord Jesus, is not presently broken and bloodied. He's got a resurrected, glorified perfect body sitting at the right hand of his father. He is enthroned right now. Surely we reflect on and remember the crucifixion, but he's not frozen in time on the cross. Neither do we rehearse the crucifixion in worship. We submit to him and approach him as he is enthroned next to the, next to the father. So his work is done. He's not bleeding. He's not bloody anymore. He's been transformed. His sacrificial work is finished. So whose blood is on his garments? Well, back in chapter 14, we read about the great tribulation and the blood of the martyrs flowing like wine out of the winepress. In just a few verses, he's going to go back and he's going to smash the wine press. So are his garments not stained with the blood of his saints? Are his garments stained with the blood of the martyrs? As he goes out to make war on the beast, does he not go to avenge his bride wearing the reminders, the evidences of her sacrifices? This is another way that he identifies with her. She shares in his sufferings. He shares in hers. He's dressed in a bloodstained garment. Well, as we're about to read, his people are dressed in white. He takes on her suffering, but he imputes to her his righteousness and his purity. She's dressed in white. He is dressed in a bloodstained garment. Verse 14. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Remember the white, uh, the, the high priest wore white linen once a year when he went into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant on the Day of Atonement. Now the saints are wearing white linen, which indicates they're dressed like priests. And they have been granted full full access to the heart of the sanctuary. They have been brought into the most holy place. So they're dressed like priests and they follow him on white horses. As he goes out to rule and to conquer, they follow in his train. His battle is their battle. He's on a horse, they're on horses. He's dressed for battle, they're dressed for battle. He goes out and conquers and they follow him. Verse 15, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword and that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. His conquest of the nations comes through the instrument of his word. He conquers with his mouth. He is the word and he conquers with His lips. Isaiah 11 says, He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. The only weapon he needs to break the opposition of his enemies and to establish his reign of justice and peace, the only instrument, the only weapon he needs is the crystal clear, pure proclamation of the gospel. When his word is read out loud, explained, repeated, sung, rejoiced in, heralded, trumpeted out, when it is thundered, the boundaries of the kingdom are pushed out even farther. There's no weapon mightier and more devastating to the powers of darkness than the word of the Son, the sword of his mouth, which his bride also wields. When we speak the word of the Lord, when we speak the gospel, we are joining his warfare. We're joining joining in his fight, which is why the world of unbelief wants to silence you. They want to shut you up. They want you to be quiet. They don't want you to feel confident saying out loud that Jesus is king. They want to shame you into silence. And for you to believe you're not that smart to begin with. Uh, Obviously, you're not smart. You say things like that. How How can you say something like Jesus is king of all the earth? What in the world? What are you talking about? Some kind of fruit loop. Because they know how powerful this weapon is. Christ rides out to conquer and his weapon is the word, the proclamation of the gospel. This is why it makes sense to see these events unfolding after the destruction of Jerusalem. These these events as beginning in the first century. We don't wait thousands of years between the destruction of Jerusalem and Christ's conquest of the nations by his word. We aren't reading about the end of things here in Revelation. We're reading about the beginning of things, the beginning of the kingdom agenda of Christ to rule the nations. And right now, today, the kings of the earth either must submit to the rule of the son or they will perish under his wrath. Every time you see a nation chastised in the world today, whenever you see calamity or destruction, you're not witnessing random events that are out of control. These are not simply things that God allows because he had his back turned or because he wasn't watching. These are not things that God didn't know about or he could have prevented but chose not to. When there is turmoil, when there is calamity among the nations, you know that God is shaking things up and that all these things are being ordered and directed by the Lord Jesus, the King of all the nations. He will have their crowns to add to his collection. He will possess every land, no exceptions. We have to get that into us, that that Jesus is not just the King of ideas, that he's not just the King of Sunday morning. He's not just the King of heaven He's not just the king of warm thoughts. He is Lord of all, which is what we sang this morning. Crown him Lord of all. What is all? It's all, everything. He's Lord of everything. But we're always fighting this uphill battle against the myth of neutrality, the idea that we're able to have this homogenized, vanilla, secular space, and we can get together and organized society, apart from any God, apart from any religion, just just get together and work on neutral ground. There's a couple of things wrong with that. First of all, every man worships something, either worships himself or power or influence or fame or wealth. Every man has a philosophy that he put together somewhere and you bring those things with you so that no space that you enter is ever neutral. You're worshiping something just by breathing. You're Every man is a worshiper. Secondly, this king wielding a sword and a rod, this king with eyes aflame riding on a white horse going out to subdue the nations, he accepts nothing less than total allegiance. You can't take a neutral position on this king. Either Jesus is king of all, or he isn't. There's no third option. There's nothing else. Either he is or he isn't. And You can't look him in the eye and say, oh, I'm an agnostic. I'm just gonna sit this one out. You know, I'm kind of undecided. I'm a neutral party. You go on with your thing. I'm just not gonna participate. No, you either submit to him or you are destroyed by the sword and rod of his mouth. Nobody is allowed to hold an impartial, unbiased position on King Jesus. All nations are 100% required to be Christian in an official capacity. Any nation that does not submit to this king will perish. All nations will be Christian nations. It's not a matter of if, but when. What What does Psalm 46 mean when he says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Jesus rules over all and will be acknowledged. He rules the world with a rod of iron. That's a reminder. uh, This verse is a reminder of Psalm 2, right? When he breaks the disobedient nations with a rod of iron. You know, shepherds don't use a rod of iron. They use a wooden rod to correct and move and guide their sheep, to steer them the way they wanted to go, to have a hook to bring them back over. They use a wooden rod. This shepherd has a iron rod. He has an iron rod because he's not just subduing sheep. He's subduing monsters too. He conquers with the sword of his mouth, the gospel. He governs with the rod of his mouth, his father's law. He is the word of God and his work is word-based. It is declarative. It is judicial. It's also creative. He creates, he spoke the world into being and he speaks new things into being. He defines reality. He is truth and he speaks truth. And this brings him in conflict with the beast. So I'm just going to finish the chapter in one swoop, beginning at verse 17, and then make a few final observations. Verse 17, we see his work and his conquest. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat On the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with a sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. This is the third feast we've had in a row in Revelation. First, we had the unholy communion of the harlot city, Jerusalem, the demon communion of the harlot city. Then we had the pure marriage supper of the Lamb. And now there's another feast, but this one is a feast that's carried out by the buzzards, by the vultures, by the scavengers. You know, one of the curses for breaking the covenant back in Deuteronomy 28, if you break the covenant... Here's what God says. Your carcasses shall be food for all the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and no one shall frighten them away. The angel summons all the birds to come because they're about to have a big buffet. And we would expect this point in the story to have this kind of this extended uh, a detailed description of of a great battle, of of some great conflict, a lot of head smashing and stabbing, and you know, beaten and all the stuff. Maybe a great action sequence. But instead, all we see is the battle's aftermath. It's like it's over before it starts. The the rider on the white horse shows up and it's just mopping up and cleaning up left to do. The war is over as soon as it starts. And now we have the sentence carried out on the main villains. The beast joins the harlot as the object of destruction. The beast beast is the Roman Empire, which initially served a great purpose as the last of those great empires that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about. Uh, that, That empire that God designed to house his people uh, but which in the end turned into a destructive, wicked force and was then dispatched. It was defeated. When Christ's judgment turns against Rome now, after the defeat of the city, Rome is never the same again. It's, it no longer has a special role with regard to Israel because old Israel has gone. But as I pointed out before, at this point in history, The original Julian dynasty of Caesars is over. When Nero dies, Rome collapses. It has to be reformed. It has to be resurrected into something new. When Nero dies, the original line of Caesars is over. Then the seeds of Rome's collapse are sown. And within the next 200 years, the empire is ruled by a Christian emperor. Constantine is coming. The legacy of Rome is Christendom. But this only comes after this beast is judged. This beast is the old the the old arrangement, the old Roman Empire. It's thrown into the lake of fire, which, if you remember from chapter fourteen, the sea of glass before God's throne, has turned into a sea of fire. The lake of fire is under the feet of God. The unruly nations become his footstool. I keep wanting this back, you want to bring this back to the first century reader and try to think, what comfort would they draw from these things? They would be reassured that the beastly Roman empire, together with the harlot city, Jerusalem, who drinks the blood of the martyrs, they do not get away with anything. They do not dem- dominate history. They don't get the last word. Jesus will conquer them and he'll do it in such a way that, the, that his enemies melt before them. They become an afterthought. They become a byword. They're utterly defanged and exposed and humiliated before this king. Well, that's pretty good for us to think about and for us to know too. We get to see this triumphal procession, Jesus and his people moving out from the ruins of Jerusalem to go and conquer the entire world. And when the early Christians see these things start to take place, they know that Jesus is ruling. They know he's presiding over these events, that he's cutting all ties with the old transactions of the old temple, those transactions that are all mixed up with Rome and Herod and Caesar, those abominable desolations. And now that the king is moving out, he's going out to rule the earth. As Psalm 47 says, he brings the people under us. He subdues the nations under us. As he takes dominion, we reign and rule with him. Now, it's for us today, this morning, to hear and to understand that if we are in Christ, if we're going where he's going, if we're in him, and we are, that means his victory is our victory. His rule is our rule. His dominion is ours. We are in Him. He identifies with us at every step. He doesn't leave us in the dust. He doesn't leave us way back there and say, ah, you just get in the way. Just stay back there. I'm going to go take care of this. He brings us along with Him when He fights we fight. He brings us with him as he conquers. And we use the same weapon that he uses, which is the sword of his mouth. We use the word. There's a fascinating thing that happens when you speak truth, when you use that word, when you use that sword, uh, that that two-edged sword of his word, when you breathe out living words to a dead world, you get all kinds of convulsions and objections. You get irrational responses, and you think that because you have opposition that you failed. You think you've lost. It's easy to believe that you speak the word, and it drops like a lead balloon, and now you've wasted your time, and now you've also kind of ruined your reputation because everyone thinks you're Looney Tunes. For believing what you just said. You just said Jesus is king of everything, like I just said. I said all nations will 100% become Christian nations. They have no choice. They will be. And some of you sat there and thought, what? What is he talking about? There's, there's like this neutral thing, and he's king of heaven. And, uh, that doesn't make sense. And you think I'm nutty. Well, That's fine. But Jesus is king. So put away your sins and trust in him. Because there's no other choice. You see, you say that and you think, "Eh, it just kind of goes out there and, and people react in weird ways and people don't like it when I say those things. But what this vision shows us is that the word is always effective. You will never fail to accomplish the purposes of King Jesus, if you speak the truth out loud, if you say his word, you can be confident knowing that his word does things when it is spoken, when it is sung, when it is prayed, when it is read out loud, it either saves or it condemns, either it convicts and transforms or, or it judges. The hearer is held accountable for the thing they heard and the convulsions doesn't mean it's not working. Opposition doesn't mean it's not working. It means it is. That's what it means. It means it is working. The strategy of the enemy is to make you believe that you are ineffective, that you are alone, that you are weak, that you are defenseless, and that your sins have disqualified you from speaking out loud the word of God. But Jesus says, I put a white robe on you, and I like you, and you're my beloved, and you're gonna follow me into battle. And your sins haven't put you outside of my love. And your sins haven't put you, haven't disqualified you from the battle. In fact, I need you. I need you in this battle. And, and the enemy wants you to feel weak and defenseless. <laughs> and I want you to know for certain that that's a lie. That you are in Christ. And by faith, you possess all that is Christ's. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this promise. We thank you for our union with our beloved. We thank you for our union with Christ. And we thank you that all of the promises and blessings and benefits that flow to him flow to us. And so cause us to rejoice in this, to acknowledge this and to accept it and to live like it in the confidence of knowing him and being part of your bride, the church. Father, grow us in this faith every day. We pray in Jesus name. Amen.